The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you uh, take your Bibles and turn to the uh, 21st chapter of Revelation. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We come to the last two chapters of the Bible. And even just saying that is really, it's a, it's a stunning thing to me. We, you have 66 books, and we've come down to the last two chapters. These last two chapters are not the normal way that a book ends. The way that Revelation ends, in in one sense, it's the end of the book of the Revelation, but in another sense, it is the end of the Bible. And normally when you get to um, uh, the end of a story, you end up having... Um, some sort of summary or recap of everything that's gone on and how all the, the, the strings got tied together and all the, the loose ends got brought together. And, and I don't know about you, but I get really irritated if I'm reading a book or watching a movie and you get to the end and you're like, hey, wait a minute, what about, right? Doesn't that drive you crazy, right? Well, Revelation ends, but it ends at the beginning. The last things are like the first things. 
And so this new creation, we'll, we'll see this more specifically as we, we move on. The new creation out Eden's Eden. All right? The new creation is absolutely glorious, but as we saw last week, it is amazingly like the first creation. And one of the things that should, that should strike us as we come to the last two chapters of the Bible and we realize the last things are like the first things, although better, is that the first things are good. Now, not everything that's happened since Genesis 3 that we could call the first things is good. But this world that God made is good. That was his declaration. These bodies, these lives that he's given to us, they're good. And so God is not in the habit of actually destroying that which he has made good. He is in the habit of taking that which is good and has been corrupted and tainted by sin and redeeming it and claiming it back for himself from the clutches of sin, cleansing it, restoring it, and making it better than ever before. And that's what he's going to do. And so even these bodies of ours, this world of ours, it's going to be so much more than we could ever imagine. But remember, the reason that we're looking so forward to this next Narnia is because it kind of looks like this one, right? Do you know what that does? By the way, having a view of the new creation like that, what that does is it spares us from ungodly, unbiblical, pagan views of heaven. The goal of our redemption is not to be disembodied spirits that that inhabit some uh, ethereal uh, existence. The goal of our redemption is to have these bodies raised and to live in a new heaven and a new earth that's ruled by King Jesus and righteousness will mark its existence forever. That's the goal. That's the goal. And to think that of all the planets and in, in all of God's creation, it's this one, right? That's the focal point of all that he's doing. Okay. It's just amazing. Now, I don't know if in the new creation, it's the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know if Pluto will get planet status or not. I mean, but um, it's going to be absolutely wonderful. So verses one through eight, which, which maybe we'll get finished tonight. I don't know. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, based on the new covenant. And then what ends up happening, as, as we mentioned last week, is that John recapitulates, right? So that's, that's what Revelation is continually done, right? You have this progressive parallelism or recapitulation, however you want to put it, where you have a picture 
and then that picture is given, then you step back and then you look at that picture from this angle. And then you step back and look at the picture from this angle. And then you come over here and look at the picture from this angle. And so what's going to happen is, is that John's going to step back after giving us this introduction to the new heavens and the new earth, and he's going to focus then on the, the, the glorious, beautiful nature of the new Jerusalem, and then he's going to talk about the glorious nature of the new temple. And by the way, if you have read uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48, and you've scratched your head, and you're like, what is that about? Ezekiel 40 to 48 is an Old Testament prophet's vision of Revelation 21 and 22. Okay. And so you have new Jerusalem, new temple, and then chapter 22, new Eden. And then you end up having the, the epilogue or the formal conclusion of the book, which bookends at the beginning. And so last week we, we hit cha- uh, verse 1, and uh, just a reminder, uh, and I'll say this again and again, the, the last things are like the first. And so we have this, this new heaven and this new earth. So when, when John talks about the first heaven, the first earth, that's, that's the first creation. Okay? And that first creation ends up being um, just ruined by the fall. Right? In fact, you, you ever... Pay attention to the Christmas hymns that we sing. Okay? Isaac Watts had a vision of this reality of a renewed earth in joy to the world. Okay? No more let thorns or thistles grow, where thorns infest the ground. What's the next line? He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, right? In other words, it's looking forward to a day when the first world, the first existence, the first, which is marked by thorns and thistles, which of course is, is in, in a sense symbolic of a fallen world. We're looking forward to actually a day when all of that is marvelously reversed, and his blessings will flow far as the curse is found. Right? And so this new heaven, this new earth, the, that, 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 that first existence has, has passed away. And, and, and it's, it's, it's new and it's glorious and it is, um, it's marked by the lack of hostility and chaos and evil, which the sea represented throughout. And then John goes from new heaven, new earth, to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I'm going to argue that all of this actually overlaps. And um, in a sense, the new Jerusalem is the new creation. But there's a sense in which also the new Jerusalem marks uh, or identifies the people, right? So people and place are, are interchangeable. Uh, how do we know that? Well, because later in verse 9, when John, uh, the, the, uh, the angel says, you want to see, notice it, you can see in, uh, in verse 9, 
uh, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came, spoke with me saying, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me what? The bride, the wife of the lamb, which is what? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so now this new Jerusalem is, uh, and again, the Old Testament background is glorious, right? What is the old Jerusalem marked by? Old Jerusalem's apostate. Old Jerusalem's marked by false worship. The old Jerusalem is marked by corruption and injustice. And so all, and, and by the way, that's the, that's the book of Isaiah. And so repeatedly, right out of the gate, chapter one, uh, Jerusalem, it, Jerusalem has more in common with Sodom and Gomorrah. But then God promises that Mount Zion, which is another way to say what? Jerusalem actually is going to be the highest mountain. The nations are going to stream to it. And so that's chapter two. And the rest of the book of Isaiah in one way or another is telling us how God actually takes this apostate, rebellious, uh, idolatrous city and actually recreates for himself a new Jerusalem that's a part of a new creation. How does that happen? Well, of course, it happens through the work of the suffering servant. And so that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And again, the last things are like the first. And so just as the first Adam had a wife in the garden, so in the new creation, the last Adam has his bride, which is the church. Now, the, the, the fact is, is that the New Testament is already, is, the New Testament is already talking about Jerusalem this way. It's not like this is just something unique to Revelation. Paul actually makes reference to the, to the heavenly Jerusalem or the up Jerusalem in Galatians 4, 30, uh, 21 to 31, right? Talks about the present Jerusalem and the up Jerusalem. The up Jerusalem is the, uh, the children of the free woman, the people of promise, The present Jerusalem comes from Hagar and Sinai. She's in bondage. All right? So so you get this, this, I mean, it's, it's amazing, really. You get this picture of a present Jerusalem that is in bondage and actually has more in common with Ishmaelites than Isaac, the son of promise. And, and then you have the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the sons of the free woman, right? Um, you get to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, so you have, um, you've not come to Mount Sinai, and then he gives a description of Mount Sinai, the thunder, the light, the mediator of a new and better covenant whose blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, right? And so, so the idea of the new Jerusalem actually being the, the people of God is something that is already present in the New Testament, all right? And so she's going to be joined to her, to her groom, live together with him forever, and she has been prepared for this, right? And so in a sense, you could think of it this way, so... Um, 
If you if you your mind goes back to chapter twelve, how um, how is uh, the woman and her children um, being prepared? Well, she's a wilderness people, right? She's a wilderness people. Now she's protected by God in the wilderness. Satan is not able to destroy her in the wilderness, but she is still a, a wilderness wandering people, right? And so, what is that? What is that existence that we have? So in this present world, which is, are, are we actually not a wilderness wandering people? Okay. Where in the world will we get that idea? If you say Hebrews 3 and 4, I'll give you a treat. All right. Hebrews 3 and 4, right? We are actually, we are actually a wilderness people that are pressing towards the land of promise. And so what is the, what is the wilderness marked by? hostility, antagonism, enemies, right? That's this present life. And so all of that is is the father doing what? Preparing the bride for his son. So all of the the trials, all of the, uh, the endurance, the perseverance... The suffering, the little triumphs and victories, the disappointments, the loss, all of it is preparing the bride for her husband. It's absolutely marvelous. Keep, keep, keep that in mind. When the church seems like it's weak, insignificant, marginalized, when you feel weak or insignificant or marginalized, you have to realize God has has a long-term goal in mind. And that is he's beautifying the bride of Christ for her wedding day and he does it with suffering. He does it in the wilderness. You remember when Queen Esther, she wasn't queen yet, but Esther must have been a a total knockout, right? Absolutely gorgeous and so she gets chosen and you know what happens she goes on this like beauty program it's like six months right okay six months of cosmetology okay six months of of who knows what right but christ's bride her her cosmetology program is to wander in the wilderness. That's what ends up making her beautiful. Okay. So that's the, that's the vision of verse 2, but then you get verse 3 and 4, and now John hears this loud voice from the throne, so it could be God's voice. We've seen this in Revelation before. It could be the voice of an angel that's closely 
related or associated with the throne, I hear this loud voice from the throne saying, now notice this language, behold, so what kind of word is behold? Behold is an attention-getting word that says, you need to look at this. You need to fix your attention on this. This is too important to skip by. So behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. So do you know what happens here in verse three is that the, 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 the very essence of covenant promise is now consummated. What, what, are the, what are the three fundamental elements of the covenant promise? I'll be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell among you. Right? So, what does that look like um, for Israel in the wilderness? It looks like this tabernacle. Tabernacle's a fancy word for what? A tent. One that you can take down, fold up, carry with you to the next location. Okay? Now, it's precise. It is, it is deeply symbolic. There's a holy of holies. There is an outer court. There, is, uh, there are strict rules and regulations. about. But, but what's the significance of the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant? It is, this is where God is dwelling with his people. Now, I, I, sometimes we, we don't even think about... Um, like the real life stuff in scripture. So you have this tent. It's made out of sea cow skin and it's sewn together and it's beautiful and it's intricate, but it's a tent. So if Moses gives the instruction to the children of Israel around 1400 BC to build this tabernacle, they build this tabernacle, and then it moves around. So you put it up, you take it down. You put it up, you take it down. You put it up, you take it down. For those of you who camp, what happens if you have a tent that you've had for years and years and years and years, and you put it up a lot, and you take it down a lot? You put it up a lot, you take it down a lot. It gets a little wear and tear, doesn't it? That tabernacle last right up to the time of David. 400-year-old tent. And God says, that's where I'll dwell. So the very image of tabernacling among his people has this picture of a tent, right? So when he says here, and I will tabernacle among them, you have to understand He's not talking about reviving the Mosaic tabernacle in the new earth. He's actually talking about what that tabernacle pointed to. So what happens after the tabernacle? Well, you get the temple, right? 
In fact, doesn't David even say, here I am, I live in this house of, made of cedar, and yet God dwells in a ratty old tent, right? So I'm going to make him a beautiful house, right? And of course, God doesn't let David do it. Solomon has to do it. And Solomon builds this magnificent temple, right? One of the wonders of the world. Builds this absolutely magnificent temple. And in 1 Kings 8, what happens? God shows up to dwell in that temple. Now, do you know that what Solomon and everybody else knew was this? God doesn't dwell in a temple made with human hands. Even Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, the heavens and the heavens' heavens cannot contain you, right? So how much less this this little building, right? But it's the symbolism of it. And so you got the temple, and now the temple's a little more permanent, but it's not that permanent. Because in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys this thing utterly. It gets rebuilt, right? That's one of the hopes of, of the Jewish people in exile is that that temple would be rebuilt. And let's face it, it was a grand disappointment. You realize that that, that temple is being added to and built on even up until Jesus' day. Even though it was, even though it was constructed under Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua the high priest, it became known not as the second temple. It didn't become known as Zerubbabel's temple. It became known as Herod's temple. Okay. And so Jesus shows up. And the scripture says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's one of the great benefits of learning Greek is you can go, oh, look at that word is the same word that's used in the Septuagint of what God did when he pitched a tent or tabernacled among the people of Israel in the Old Testament, right? Same word. Is it significant? The answer is yeah, because what that tabernacle, which was the very image of the dwelling place of God, and what that temple, the very image of the dwelling place of God, was doing is pointing to something bigger, And what was that something bigger? The word made flesh. And as the word was made flesh, it tabernacled among us. Boy, as soon as we're done with Romans, just give me a few more weeks. And um, a few more years. And once we're done with Romans, Lord willing, I'm going to go through John. All right? Okay? And when you get to John, just the first chapter, you can stay there for years, all right? You listen, listen to the language. The word, which is God, John 1, 1, the word became flesh, pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. Next line. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, full of chesed va emet. Well, not really, but really. 
What was the tabernacle full of as God dwelt there? What was the temple full of? Loving kindness and truth. That's what God's abounding in, right? Right? God's presence among his people was the very manifestation of loving kindness and truth. When John says, we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, what you have is the parallel to loving kindness and truth. Okay? It's a parallel. In other words, Jesus is the glory of God dwelling in the midst of his people, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so John 1 just blows you away because then you realize that the, the, the very covenant promise of I will dwell among you, that that tabernacle and that temple were just, in a sense, dim shadows of what was going to happen. God was going to take on human flesh and that human flesh is how he would pitch his tent among us and dwell among us. The incarnation. Marvel at this time of year. Seriously. Christmas is a blessing to us. Do you know why? Because it gives us you say, well, we should think about the incarnation every day. Well, we should, but guess what? We don't. So what Christmas does is Christmas actually drives us back to veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And so there you've got the Emmanuel promise right there, John 1. And then you go over to John 2 and... Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in 2.19, destroy this temple and all raise it in three days. Now, these guys are so sharp. I mean, these guys are so sharp they could cut themselves. I'm telling you, it was, it was amazing because they look at Jesus after that statement and they go, we've been working on this thing for 46 years. Parenthesis, he was speaking of his body. So, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. We've even seen that in Colossians 2, right? It is is in Christ that the fullness of the Godhead dwells. How? Bodily. So, so. All of that is pointing us to the incarnation where God's dwelling among us, but even the incarnation is not the consummation. It was was 33 years. And then Jesus ascends back to heaven, and what does he do? He sends his spirit to do what? To create a temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. What are you? 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What are you? The church is the temple of God. In other words, by the way, don't you think it's interesting? None of this is in my notes, by the way. 
Don't you think it's interesting that Paul calls the church, what? The body of Christ. Don't read your Bible and just think like, uh, oh, body of Christ, um, uh, an organic organism that functions and, oh, what a cool metaphor. No, there's a reason why the church is the body of Christ. Just as the body of Christ in the incarnation is the dwelling place of God, so now the church as the dwelling place of God on earth as Jesus is in heaven. So what's going to happen, Revelation 21.3, is when the covenant promise is ultimately consummated. And he tabernacles among us, not through a tent, not through a temple. He tabernacles among us because now there is, so the fancy word that theologians would, would use, they use it in terms of the, of the Trinity is perichoresis. That is, that is mutual indwelling. Well, that's, that's what the new creation is like. It's mutual indwelling. God is dwelling in his people, and his people are dwelling in him. He is the dwelling place for his people. I mean, <laughs> I, I hope that you just kind of think to yourself, um, this is a little above my pay grade. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. That, that which the incarnation was, God dwelling with us, in the new creation becomes permanent. So he tabernacles among us, he dwells among us, and then this magnificent, they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God. Dennis Johnson, in his really wonderful commentary on Revelation, he says, the intimacy with God that made Eden truly paradise, the garden of God, was lost through human sin. The tabernacle of God in the midst of Israel's wilderness camp picked up motifs from that lost home. In the fruit tree patterns of its curtains and the towering cherubim guarding its inmost sanctuary. By the way, both the tabernacle and the temple are designed to look like the Garden of Eden. Daniel will go into that sometime soon. Ezekiel 40 to 48 is not only a temple, it's the Garden of Eden. So Dennis Johnson says, yet both tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament times were faint previews of the eventual eternal dwelling place of God among his people. God's presence marks the consummation of an intimate covenant commitment often expressed in the Old Testament 
in words such as, my dwelling place will be among them, I will be their God, they will be my people, and that is what is echoed here. And so think about this for a second. So here you have Adam in, in the garden, okay, before the fall. And what, what is implied? Um, so after the fall, what happens? Um, they hear the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right? And they hide themselves. There's actually, if you read between the lines, it's not that hard to imagine that every day, Adam and Eve communed with God in the garden. That particular day, something had changed. But the garden was that place of of intimate communion, now disrupted by sin. In redemption, is communion with God restored? The answer is yes. But can I still get distracted? I get distracted all the time. Oh, no, 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 no. So this is now. So in redemption, right? So Jesus has saved me. He's forgiven me my sins. I have communion with God. Do I long for that communion like I should? No. When I have that communion, do I enjoy it in an unbroken way? No. So here's, here's the reality, is that the best, sweetest, most intimate communion that we can have with God in this world is still limited and imperfect and still often derailed by our own sin. And so there's something inside of the child of God who tastes and sees and, and, and understands the limitations and the imperfections that longs for something more. Don't you actually long for something more? You read your Bible, you pray, and you, you know that, that God was with you and you know that God heard you, but do you not long for something more? The reason you long for something more is because you were created for something more. You were not created to simply live in this world and to be distracted and to be derailed and to have your communion with God cut short again and again and again because of a wandering mind or or a weary body. And so it is in that new creation that our communion with God reaches the climax of what it was intended to be. And in the new creation, communion with God out Eden's Eden. Is it any wonder John closes this book with, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, that echoes in here. Something more. And so the whole of Eden, the whole of the land, the whole of the wilderness, the tabernacle, the temple, the incarnation, the church, all of it comes to its consummation in the new creation when God himself 
will dwell among us. Now, there are consequences of having God tabernacle among us, dwell among us, and to have that communion with him, right? So there are, there are massive implications, okay? So have you ever had an event that changed your life? Okay. By the way, when I ask that, most of the time, it's not something good that comes to mind, Right? Right? I can think of plenty of things that were like bad, ugly, painful, that changed your life. On, on, on some occasions, they're like these really great things that change your life. Okay? So on July 11th, 1987, my life changed forever. I married Ariel. That was a great day. And it changed my life for the better. You think I'm honoring now. You think what I would be like if I wasn't married to Ariel. April 25th, 1989. My life has changed forever. This, this unexpected blessing comes into our life. Okay. Okay. I know when my, my boys were born, I just can't remember the years. Okay. <laughs> July 12th, 1990-something. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so there are good things that actually change your life, right? There's coming a day when being in God's immediate presence will change us and change us forever. Very first thing, consequence of the consummation of the covenant. You see it in verse 4. First consequence of a consummated covenant in the new creation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't it interesting that, so verse 1, new heavens, new earth, new creation. Verse 2, new Jerusalem. Verse 3, God tabernacling, dwelling among us were his people. He's our God. So that covenant is consummated. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing is he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. It, so I would have expected it something like this. Um, and God himself will dwell among them. They shall be his people. He'll be their God, and glory will fill the new creation, or uh, like something like that. The kingdom will come. All the nations will bow down, right? Like something like so awesome and cosmic and massive in scale, And, and here it is. He wipes away every tear from your eye. Oh my goodness. And by the way, this comes to us from Isaiah. Isaiah 25, which is out there on Mateo's um, the sign for the dedication of that building. Isaiah 25. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. It is repeated at the end of Isaiah chapter 65. 
5. It is repeated in uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. And I've preached before on, um, on God and our tears. The first consequence that's mentioned of being in consummated covenant relationship with God in the new creation is that he wipes away the tears from our eyes. Gavin Ortland says, this is, this is really, really good. This verse seems to be claiming more than simply, we won't weep in heaven. The imagery of God wiping away our tears seems to suggest consolation for as well as the end of all earthly grief. Heaven will not merely end our pain. Somehow, it will mend it. And this is what I butchered last week, so I get a chance to redeem it. He goes on, he says, Tim Keller puts it like this. Resurrection means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. And then Ortland says, it's like the end of the Lord of the Rings when Sam asks Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is yes. There's coming a day where everything that caused you to cry will be mended in a new creation. Every horrible thing that brought you pain, I think Keller's right, in some way will make the eventual glory and joy even greater. You understand this is more than just you know, like baby shampoo commercial, no more tears. This is like, this is like massive reversal. Massive reversal. What is it that brings tears to us in this life? We live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world. Our own sins, the sins of others. We live in a wicked world. We live in a corrupt world. We live in a world that seems to be continually fighting against the God that we love. And there are so many tears and so many legitimate reasons to actually cry. And there's coming a day when God himself is going to wipe away every single tear from our eyes. So that the pain of the first things are not only not painful anymore, they're repaired, they're redeemed, they're cleansed. 
By the way, the very, the very statement that he'll wipe away all the tears from our faces, that very statement is a statement of triumph. Sin and sadness and sorrow and grief do not have the last word. Period. God triumphs. And he triumphs so victoriously that tears become a thing of the past. And then the second consequence no longer any death. My goodness. As good as this first creation is, it's actually death that mars this creation, is it not? It's death which is the fruit of sin, and it's death that's the very trademark of the curse. You want to see the handiwork and the fingerprints of, of the curse? Every time somebody dies. And John says in that new creation, not only will he wipe away all of our tears, there won't be any more death. which means there won't be any more dying. I've heard it said, maybe it was R.C. Sproul, I can't remember. He says, not death that scares me, it's dying that scares me. The first Adam brought death into this world. The second Adam becomes the giver of life. And it, it, it will be his indestructible resurrection life that will be what marks the new creation. Adam's fingerprints, Adam's sin, the consequence of Adam's sin, which is death, all over this world. All over, every single day, every single minute. New creation the fingerprints of the last Adam, the eschaton Adam, who actually conquered death and now lives and reigns by the power of an indestructible life, and it will be that life that actually marks the new creation. No more death. Overcome forever. And then, just in case, I don't know if the angel thought we were slow or John thinks we're slow, but the very next consequence is no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. Now, I, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll just tell you that um, I think that there's something about it that you simply say, I really can't hear that enough. No more mourning. No more mourning. more grief. I, I will tell you, I have seen more grief in this last year 
And there is a, there is a heaviness about it that just rings your heart to the point at times you feel like I can't even get another tear. I've heard people grieve like I've never heard people grieve before. And even when someone's old, death is not a part of life. Don't say stupid stuff like that. It's an enemy. Ariel and I'll be sitting there and she'll just start crying. What's wrong? Well, I know what's wrong. I'm thinking about my mom. I'm thinking about this. I was remembering that. That's what's, that's life in a fallen world, is it not? It's mourning. The new creation, God promises us no longer any mourning, no longer any crying, no longer any pain. So the, in a sense, the mourning, crying, or pain make up, make up the cacophony of this sin-cursed world. Mourning, crying, and pain are the, are the, the, the lament songs of a fallen and broken world. This is what we have to look forward to. If I could sing, I'd sing it to you. A highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will there be any vicious beast that goes up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In the new creation, there will be No more broken hearts. That is something to look forward to. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we we long for this chapter to become sight. We long for it to invade this present existence in a way that all of these things become ours. And so, Lord, we pray that as we battle through this this wilderness life,
that you would remind us that there's a new creation coming. And we're going to commune with you in ways that we can't even imagine right now. And the blessings of that communion will make everything sad come untrue. And so we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.